Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is your host, Lorraine Neidhart. You have reached Venus Unplugged. And what we do here is we explore uh, the archetypal world of Venus, all things Venusian, whether it be beauty or passion or the heavens or art or heartbreak. How does Venus operate in all her different forms in our life and through our lives? And the lack of, and the suffering from the lack of. So what we've been exploring the last couple of weeks is the story of Persephone, her mother's Demeter, and her abductee, Hades, who she eventually, uh, she's abducted into the underworld. Persephone is abducted into the underworld, and uh, she gets tricked by Hades, and she has to come back three months out of the year to be queen of the underworld. So it's quite a complex complex story. And um, we live all of these archetypes out, whether we're aware of it or not. So this ancient story of this journey of loss, of the separation of mother and daughter, of betrayal, and lost innocence are all themes we live out very much to this day. So we were discussing uh, the loss of innocence and how uh, Demeter, who is mourning and looking, you know, this is when she's in her, like, Demeter, the the love bunny phase, but she's going to move into Demeter, Demeter Uranus, and that is the fury so she moves from the loving mother, the grain mother, the, that nothing on this earth will grow without her blessing. As she's looking for her abducted daughter, she stops everything from growing, and she mourns. And that's what happens with us as human beings when we're betrayed or lost innocence or we don't know where the other half is or some great disappointment has occurred, we we look, we search, we search for meaning, we we, we search in art, we uh, take workshops, we do all sorts of things to very often deny uh, the grief and the suffering. And there's only one way, and that is down and through and with. Because once we can get in touch with this great, suffering, then we have the energy for transformation. We can't just go from, I mean, we can, but we don't get anything out of it. We just go from denial into, into rage, but there's really no rites of passage or no deep wisdom. So this is a, this is a story that, that tells us how to work with the suffering and the different stages of it. You see, what, what's so fa- fascinating, particularly about this, is that, you know, the loss of innocence, um, you know, Demeter never blames her daughter. She knows, knows it's something that happens. I mean, anytime, you know, this is also the story of victimization and also how do we move through victimization and that we don't blame shit happens to all of us. 
it's a waste for the blaming. What we need to get into is is the the grief and the recognition of the depth of the betrayal and the fury that comes with that and then the resolution that comes with that. Too often we expect of ourselves, which I always find so interesting, well, I want to forgive. It's like, well, you know, well, how can you forgive if the other side hasn't acknowledged the wounding? What are you forgiving yourself? You know, that's, you know, you're just going to keep going around. Nothing's going to get healed. There needs to be a dynamic of opposites in order for a forgiveness. I think there is a natural order of forgiveness when we work through and uh, on our own part, let's say in the case of this story, where we really consciously suffer through, we feel the wound, we feel the betrayal, we feel the victimization, but we do not stay there. We don't wait for the other to acknowledge or to be put in jail or to suffer some great suffering or for their karma to come back. Karma is very slow. What we do is we say, okay, this is unfortunate, but whatever is unfortunate from kit or kin, we have to transform within ourselves. It's ultimately the deal. And so the loving, Demeter, kind, you know, mother, growing mother, she does not blame the wounded child. She goes in search of the divine child. We need to go in search. The loving side of us needs to go into search for the disappearance of that part of us, that beauty, that innocence. And also innocence journey to wisdom. We just don't wake up one day and suddenly we're wise. It comes with a lot of salt. Salt in in alchemy is, is the suffering. And without the sulfur and the salt, you know, that that stink of rotten eggs when something rotten is happening in our life. But it's the bitterness and the salt that brings the wisdom. So this loss of innocence, this, in a sense, an unfixable nature that betrays and the grief that naturally flows from the betrayal must be consciously accepted wasn't abducted, but something just happened to the radio show. You know, this is the third time this happened, and I wonder if this is a, a statement from Psyche. Well, at any rate, so the loss of innocence, and then the morning, we have to respond, and we have to go through, you know, the ego doesn't want to go through any suffering. It doesn't want to be released. It just says, no, just jump over. Don't you repress it. Uh, you know, uh, give it to somebody else. Uh, I don't want to suffer this. Or, 
or denies it or will go into uh, a state of depression or anorexia or all the different defense mechanisms that the ego has. But if we just say, no, I am going, you know, because paradoxically, the morning must be embraced if we're going to kind of get the fruits of uh, of this story. So the archetypal purity, which is the divine innocent one, the divine mission of mourning must be reconnected to the world of relationships. Just as Demeter connects to the archetypal goddess grief to the mundane world of family life. So that's when she's being her loving self. Okay, Then when she starts to really get in touch with, you know, the holy shitballs I am furious. How dare they? Because this is all, it's all set up by Gaia and Rhea, you know, the grandmothers and the great-grandmothers and the gods, you know, it's set up to separate. And the gods do set us up and then disappear. We never find out what's going on unless we have a dream or really interested in mythology or, you know, the way of symbolism. And then we can start figuring out what myth we have just been mugged by which then, which is the genius of mythos and the genius of fairy tale, then we have a pattern, uh, you know, and, and how this follows. And and some of the resolutions or some of the ways that we can move through this. And in this case, with this particular myth, since it's involving, you know, several generations of gods and goddesses, it's the paradox of the morning that we must go through no matter what happens to us, all right? So Demeter, uh, of course, when she finds out uh, that it's Hades, her brother, who abducts. Now, of course, in the world of gods and goddesses, they can do stuff like this. In the world of humanity, not such a great idea. So she becomes when she realizes the emergence from the despair and she brings on her wrath. And there's a lot of wrath going on right now in the world, in case you haven't noticed, within and without. And it's got to be conscious because it has to do with mourning. Are we mourning principles that we thought we would be lived by and that is no longer true? You know, what is the, what, what's, what is the betrayal, the mourning, the loss of innocence? That is bringing such pain into your life. And then she comes up, she switches because of this despair and this wrath to Demeter, Uranus, the furious. And her willingness to engage with people leads directly to the person, uh, which actually winds up being a swineherd, who tells her the knowledge she needs to know, tells her what happened. Your daughter was abducted into the underworld, and now she knows at least where her daughter is, and then the real story begins. So then her anger and her power and her confronting authority and pursuing and re- redressing, you know, these are the things that sh- the wrath of Demeter is liberating. It's a devastating experience, and particularly when the feminine gets furious. It's like, oh, well, I'm just an angry bitch. It's like, no, actually, I'm carrying a message from Demeter. And um, she will not accept this loss and this abduction. 
So when we feel the wrath of Demeter, it's very liberating. It's also devastating. But that's the way that it is. So the ego comes to full awareness of the betrayal of the innocent child. And a part of the self, with this with a capital S, experiences the great mother's willingness to cause any amount of suffering to others in order to rescue the lost divine child. Now, that would be one hell of a T-shirt, huh? So the ruthlessness on behalf of love is absolutely necessary and extremely challenging to handle. The ruthlessness on behalf of love, not just the craze out, angry stuff. It's on the behalf of, of love. So it's sort of like a ruthless mobilization of all available power and resources to regain connection with the imprisoned divine child, with the abducted and exploited innocence, with our grace, and with the potential of the maiden. The maiden is the, the, the one who's about to blossom into her womanhood. So then Demeter becomes this cathodic power of the earth, the emotion, matter, reaching out at all costs to open a channel to the closed-off underworld. And Demeter takes this heroic acts without assuming the hero's persona. So she's not in it for uh, the glory. She is in it to get the divine child back into consciousness. She's not seeking revenge, but she is seeking redress, which is a very important difference. She's not seeking revenge. She's seeking redress. She exerts strength without denying vulnerability or emotion. And she opens a mediation with her rage. So she's not just going to go forever on the warpath, but it's certainly going to get people talking. So Demeter never forgets, abandons, or blames Persephone. So that Persephone within ourselves, or that one that has been victimized, or or the, we have victimized others, you know, it's we cannot abandon or blame Persephone. It's something that happened too. So this is a, a, a crucial psychological point. Demeter's stance illuminates a healthy ego attitude. All right. Uh, Jung thought that the that the ego forms a kind of a lens or a filter that bends external and internal stim- stimuli into shapes it can handle, which is kind of like what an art form. I'm, you know, we're all born with it. I mean, it's an incredible image. Uh, it's probably one of the reasons we we must express art because that is what's going on, and consequently, the ego consciousness or the ego's attitude towards the experience tends to determine what we see and understand by this kind of uh, movement internally and externally. So once we begin to understand what this lens or this attitude, so it's like if it's the lens of this attitude of a victimized child in the unconscious is a flaw or a sign of impact, in perfection, the ego feels that it, it must be rejected. And that's no, it, it must be related to 
found and related to and rejoiced even in its woundedness. So it's kind of love what is unlovable within ourselves. We're not going to love it the same white, bright way uh, or pink, bright way, but we're going to, it's much deeper. It's with a fury, a wild and red fury that says, no, you will not be left out in the cold. So the ego, who likes to kind of like keep things perfect, you know, this the ego's attitude, depending on the lens, is how it's going to look. So the ego, you know, it usually does things that are habits, and that's why it's so difficult to change the ego, because it's habitual. But it must be brought to the awareness and challenged. So if the ego consciousness of a person who has been victimized can begin to consciously identify with Demeter and Core, Core was the name of Persephone as a child, she will be transformed in Persephone, who always returns from the underworld. Isn't this amazing how this all works out? And so there's a strong pull for, for the ego consciousness to identify with Zeus or Hades, you know, in this kind of patriarchal world, who embodies the stances that are closer to the cultural norm. But not in this story. It's more important that the wrath of Demeter is mediated by Rhea, the mother of uh, Demeter and Zeus and Hades. Rhea is the daughter of Gaia, and is as such, she springs from a world order that predates Zeus's domination. So now we get into serious ancestry, and also we 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 ask for the ancestors to help us. You know, whether it's the ancestors of our culture, of our, of our belief system, whatever it might be. You know, there are always ancestors that know. So not even the gods know what are going on. It is the great mother and the great great cosmic mother that know. So Rhea is the mediating mother, the one who bridges conflicts and who values connection above absolutes. She is the most ancient, ancient of goddesses. And through her intervention, Zeus moves from this kind of absolute domination, and Demeter moves from this absolute wrath. So you've got dominance and wrath. It's not a good combination. They should not be invited to the same dinner table, uh, unless you really just want to watch things be torn apart. And the willingness to come out of wrath for a good enough resolution, that's pivotal. A good enough, not an absolutely perfect, it's good enough. Something moves and something shifts. No, it's not necessarily like aha moment, but it's enough of an insight, a movement towards one's own wholeness. Because that's the end game, getting the divine child back. Not whether you can wrath somebody to smithereens, right? So Rhea enacts a feminine value She's reacting a feminine value, which is the relatedness, 
not just staying on one's high horse and screaming and yelling and opinions. We can have a good enough movement towards the wholeness. So this valuing of connection, whether it's in, you know in, intrinsically or only culturally feminine, is desperately needed by all of us. Hecate, goddess of the moon, the goddess of the night, you know, she's goddess of witches, um, is an important mediating figure in the resolution of the myth. Hecate is both an Olympian goddess and a titan. So she's really got all those stripes and stars. She's like she's the superpower. And like Rhea, she's a member of the divine race that predates Olympus. So it gives us a hint. The ancestors. They can override all this nonsense. The original ones, the first ones. Ones we call upon. So this um, being a member of the divine race that predates uh, the Zeus's Olympus, she's a remnant, vague, but very potent. She's still very active in our psyches. And she's the old cosmic goddess of death and regeneration in the crone manifestation. Each, you know, the Virgin Mother Crone, these are all manifestations both in male and female. Uh, in the male's unconscious, and Hecate is associated with the night and the dark of the moon, with witches, with crossroads, with uh, the hound that guards the entrance of the underworld, remember the three-headed dog, yeah, okay, that too. And, in, and she's agreeing to watch over and attend to Persephone while she is below. So Hecate is the archaic mistress of the dark. And she may be agreeing to initiate Persephone into the new role of Queen of the Underworld. So that's part of the mystery school of the Illusion Mysteries. This is what was being reenacted. Not just kind of leaving her there. She comes up queen. Something had to be going on. So she aids in the reconstitution of an older form of the great mother goddess, and she's inclusive of dark aspects of the feminine, a form that the Zeus Olympian order ignores. So we even see that in our our present day culture when when the dark feminine comes up, it's like whoa, you know, oh, that's bad, or that's even no, it's just ancient, and it's in all of us. So psychologically, Hecate is the image of the part of the self, that's with a capital S, S-E-L-F, that is comfortable in the unconscious, which pursues intuition and hidden connections outside the light of ego consciousness. So the answer is not always the light. It's the dark light. She is comfortable at the crossroads, Anytime we're at the crossroads of life, which road do I walk down? Well, we always know that Hermes' little trickster god is there, too, uh, to see what we're going to choose. So she's always at the crossroads, too. She's comfortable at the crossroads between conscious and unconscious knowledge. And Hecate 
enables Persephone to live safely in the underworld, which is, of course, is the main groove of Persephone's ability to descend and return. So, in the stories that take place after Persephone becomes queen of the underworld, she absorbs many of Hecate's attributes. In a way, the wholeness of the three-in-one goddess, Hecate Demeter-Kor, who is crone mother maiden, returns through this figure of Persephone. And that's what happens to us in our initiation state. So the gender split in this myth comes to the fore again. And well, why are all these mediating figures female? Because patriarchal societies like classical Greece or like our own tend to, uh, to divide human attributes into particular ways. So the capacity to be aggressive uh, and to take what one wants, uh, what we like to see as hate, okay, tends to be perceived as masculine, whether it is used positively or negatively. And the ability to advocate for a relational approach to problems and to mediate between opposites tends to be perceived as feminine and is embodied in the myth of Rhea and Hecate. So these capacities, which are seen as feminine, are necessarily to both men and women in the task of transforming victimization. We need the whole gang. We need it all. And the mediation ability symbolized by Rhea and Hecate. Uh, like let's say in the American uh, society's uh, victim debate, mediation is one of the aspects necessary to bridge the opposites that is key to transforming the victim experience. The divine child is stuck. So the victimization and the betrayal of innocence and of the innocent child lives on in the adult and the divine child within, which holds the potential for complete realization of the self, is split off from the upper worlds of consciousness and is enclosed in the unreachable hell of her abductor, refusing to take nourishment, just as Kor and Demeter refused food during these stages of their experience. So initially... The hell is in the early stages of the experience. Then this hell is in the unconscious, and it's a personal underworld in which the child's trauma lives in repressed form together with a part of the self that is identified with the aggressor. I listened to a marvelous, um, it was Unbeing, Krista uh, Tippett? Yeah, unbeing. I mean, I can tune into any of her, her, her interviews. It's absolutely wonderful. It was on, it was on post-traumatic stress and the work of, of yoga and uh, Shakespeare and you know really being that that it, it gets caught in the body. And there was even one system they were talking about the, of using like warm stones to put on the place where there's memory trauma in the body. And I think that's why we love our cats and our dogs and our little animals and furries. They're warm and they just less, you know, they can rest in that place where we have boo-boos. But they heal. So 
this is part of what we are dealing with, of course, right now in our world, that this split, or the lack of the bridge of the opposites of the upper world and the underworld, the conscious and the unconscious, keeps the divine child of the, of the self in hell, in the unknown. And we need to be able to get to that child through our imagination or that that child is the is the actual post traumatic stress. It's the wounded part that gets stuck in time space in physicality. It's not an abstraction. It is a psychic wound, but it's also a physical wound. It stays stuck. And no amount of talking to it is gonna unstick it. It needs to have the warmth of human relatedness and connection and love. So that's the story of uh, the way that um, Demeter, as the loving mother and as the furious mother, goes about transforming and getting her daughter and the divine child back to consciousness. But then again, okay, Persephone is going through her own initiation, so when she comes up, uh, she they realize, you know, she did eat the pomegranates, succeeds in the pomegranate, and she will return three months of the year into the underworld. So we we get our coping skills to always go back and dream time into the underworld, into the places of the unknown, to draw on the gold of psyche. We dig for the gold that's there. And this myth gives us uh, a very good uh, story on how we can do this. Okay, baby.